You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Todd Baldwin to talk about how he has been creative when investing in real estate to achieve financial freedom and become a millionaire at such a young age. Todd started down the traditional corporate career route, getting a job in sales, before becoming a successful full time real estate investor. I first heard Todd's story on the Bigger Pockets podcast, and I was super impressed. So I knew I had to have him on my show. I love how creative Todd has been with his investing, how successful he's been with it at such a young age, and all while being in an expensive market. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one, just like I did. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of the Real Estate Investing Podcast. With me today, I have Todd Bodwin. Welcome to the show, Todd. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It is a pleasure to be here. Tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today. Quick sort of 30,000 foot view is um, I have one of the oldest stories in the book. Unfortunately, it is not an uncommon story. I was raised by a single mother. I watched her struggle with money and finances my entire life and uh, knew that wasn't what I wanted for my future and my family. So at the early age of 12, I got my first job. Started my first business when I was 15, learned how to invest, make money online when I was 19. And I bought my first house when I was 23. And uh, the rest is, as they say, history. I actually have a very similar background. I started my first job when I was 14, bought my first house when I was 20 before I graduated college. So very similar timeline there. And I'm excited to get into our conversation today, not only because of your return numbers, they're incredible, but also because your strategy is, is very interesting. And it's not one that we talk a lot about here on the show. And you're doing it in an expensive market. And I know there's a lot of people that think that they can't invest in an expensive market. So tell us exactly what your strategy is. I typically buy new construction homes, big homes in expensive areas for the sole purpose of renting them out by the bedroom. So I'm in the Seattle market and housing here, if anyone listening doesn't know, it's ridiculous. A studio apartment that's 400 square feet will easily run you over $2,000 per month plus extra for parking and utilities. So I build these big, beautiful, brand new homes and we get 900 bucks on average per bedroom. Some are more, some are less. And all utilities included, everybody has a parking spot and it is a roommate situation. But for anyone that thinks they can't invest in an expensive area, my first deal. When I was a rookie, I'm getting over a 100% cash on cash return just from that first deal. And was your first deal a brand new build? It was, yeah. So my first deal was a new construction home. My wife and I occupied the master bedroom and we rented out the rest of the bedrooms to our college friends. We lived in that for nine months before buying our second house. And then three months later, we bought our third house and we ended up moving into the third and getting that owner occupied. So why did you get started with this strategy? Why didn't you go with a more traditional strategy like a flip or just even a traditional rental? Well, that's a great question. Well, the beauty about house hacking is number one, I needed a place to live too. So my wife and I, who at the time was just my girlfriend, we were looking at renting a place in Seattle. And we saw that for a one bedroom, one bath, we were going to be all in probably 2700 bucks a month. It was a little bit bigger than a studio. 
And at the time, I had a six-figure salary and she was doing well. Also, you know, we were young, 22 or 23. So I was very fortunate when I dropped out of school to take a sales job making six figures. But even we were like, this is ridiculous to spend that in rent. So we started looking at houses to buy. And we saw that just outside the city limits in south of Seattle, we could build a brand new house for you know, a fraction of the cost that Seattle proper was. And you know, it's just 20 minute bus ride from downtown. So we decided to build a brand new house. But again, it was just me and my girlfriend. It was much, way too much house for us. And so we decided to rent out the bedrooms to uh, my college buddies. And we effectively lived for free in a brand new house that we owned. And to answer your question, the reason why we didn't do a flip or you know, traditional rental is we also needed a place to live. And this was kind of a double whammy of a way to make it an investment, live for free, and also get in the real estate game. Yeah, it's so interesting that it was such a, a new build for your first property because a lot of new investors would never even consider a new build for their first property. Rightly so, I would say. But So it's interesting that you've had success that way. Do you only do these properties? And we'll get more into your portfolio as the episode goes on. But do you only do these properties if you buy them first as a house hack? Or are you buying properties and then renting them out just by the room? So I'm buying properties to rent them out by the bedroom. I typically try to buy them owner-occupied because you get a better rate and you can come up with less, less than 20% down. But so my first home, we bought owner-occupied. The second house we bought, we had to put 20% down. It was a single-family home. We bought it specifically to rent out by the bedroom. And uh, that second house was a six-bedroom, three-bathroom house. In a matter of about five days, we had all six bedrooms leased out. And the cash flow after all the expenses every month was right around, I think, between $25 and $2,700 a month immediately on that you know, one single-family home. That's when we realized that there was a big business to this. And it's funny because most people who invest in single-family homes, the cash flow can be you know, just a couple hundred bucks. You know, we have one house close to the airport where the monthly profit on that thing is bringing in 4000 And it's, it's crazy. Yeah, that's very high for one single property that's only a single family, not a multifamily with six, seven. You, know, you could see that out of an eight to 10 unit property, but just a single unit, that's very high. When you were getting into this strategy, did you study any specific resources or did it just kind of come about from happenstance? I know you mentioned you lived there and then you decided you wanted to rent out the bedrooms. Did you just kind of think of that on your own or did you study specific resources or how did you learn about it in the first place? That's a great question. So, you know, I read plenty of investing books. Um, I'm really big. I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett. I also like everything that Robert Kiyosaki has to say about assets and liabilities. But of course, my strategy is so unorthodox that there wasn't really a roadmap to buy houses specifically to rent them out by the bedroom. But what had happened is I had a terrible roommate in college and then I lived alone for a while. I just kind of remember thinking about all the problems that arise with roommates. And then when I got my sales job, I was making more money at the time than I ever made. I think when I was 22, I was on pace to make somewhere around 110, 120,000. But I wanted to buy my own real estate. So I ended up renting a room in a house for like just very cheap um, in this area. Now, the guy who owned the house, he just owned the house and he was living there. He never bought houses to then rent by the rooms. He just, he was a divorced guy and he thought, well, maybe he'll have roommates. So I wanted to take what that was and make it a lot better. And so that was kind of the idea when we bought this house. And uh, my wife and I actually argue about whose idea it was. She thinks it was her idea and I think it was my idea. But um, yeah, it is a unique strategy. And, and to answer your question, no, there wasn't a whole lot of mentorship or, or a roadmap, if you will, to get there. We just kind of had to figure it out. 
It's great that you mentioned Warren Buffett because here at the Investors Podcast, that's what we're founded on. We were founded on studying Warren Buffett. So I know the audience will really enjoy that. And I think it's interesting how you you stumbled onto the house hacking because that's exactly what happened to me. I bought my first property and it was only two bedrooms. So it was nothing crazy, but I never went in that second bedroom. I tell the story about how I went probably two or three months without even opening the bedroom door. And then I decided one day I should probably do something with this. And I ended up renting it out for $700 or $750 a month. And my mortgage was only $1,100. So I was only living for like 400 bucks. I was like, this is pretty great. I didn't even know I could be a real estate investor. I never thought I could be a real estate investor. And that was just kind of how I got started. And that's kind of spiraled to to what it is today. So it's interesting to hear that you had a, a similar situation. Do you think that this is a good strategy for a new investor to implement? And how can someone who's new to real estate implement this strategy? That's a really good question. So the, the short answer is yes, absolutely. The longer, more complicated answer is it really depends on your market. I mean, I live in Seattle where housing is so expensive that people are happy to pay 900 bucks for a bedroom. You know, they're, they're actually thrilled to. Uh, to put it in perspective, we got our first tenants January 1st of 2016. And to today, you know, in 2020, across 35 rooms and six houses, we have never missed a month's rent. We've never even missed a day's rent. And it's because the demand is so unbelievably high. But yes, to, to people, even if you're not in a crazy expensive market, it just goes back to you also have to have a place to live. So you're either going to pay down your own mortgage or you're going to pay down somebody else's. And if you buy a house, even if you don't get 900 for the room, but you, know, you have a buddy that pays you 500 or 700 or whatever it is, I think it would behoove you to do that. And of course, if you have kids, you probably don't want roommates. And it, you know, it all kind of depends on your specific circumstance. But I think buying a home for you to live in and then getting either reduced like you did, only live for $400 or for free like I was on my first, or even now, today, not only do I live for free, I actually make $1,800 per month in a house that I live in. So I think it's a brilliant strategy for anyone looking to get started. Now, what if you don't want to live there? Can you buy a rental almost like you would a traditional, but rather than just renting it out to one family, rent it out by the bedroom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do that all the time. We are up to six properties now, and we have lived in three or four of them. So we basically live in it for 12 months and then go to the next one. But so that means whether it's two or three, I don't even remember anymore, but two or three of them we just bought as investments. As I mentioned, we we have an eight-bedroom, four-bathroom house that we bought, um, specifically to rent out by the bedroom. And that brings in right around $8,000 per month in gross rents. And after the principal, interest, taxes, insurance, after all the utilities that we pay for, we cash flow $4,000 per month. So it's a phenomenal investment strategy. I love how you live there first. I often give that advice to people is, even if you don't want a house hack, even if you want to buy a property and you don't want to live with people or you don't want to buy a multifamily, you could buy a property, a single family, and then live there for a year and move out and then turn it into a rental that way. It's not necessarily the most optimal approach, but you could still get a rental within a year for only 3 3 5% down, whatever it may be. And that could be a great strategy. And you're doing that. You're just supercharging it with a lot of other strategies that you could do that make it even better. We take advantage of the owner-occupied rates and the less, you know, the less money down on my first property, I only put 3.5% down. And then we also had roommates to pay off the mortgage for us. It is like, I'll be fully transparent. It is kind of an acquired taste. And there are some things, of course, that are annoying about having roommates, but we do the best we can to match our personality. I was featured on CNBC. I had no idea it would go viral, but it definitely did. And that was just wild. And I had so many people message me asking, how do you stomach living with roommates? And what I told them was like, look, that's how I became a millionaire at 25. 
was when I was 22 or 23, I made the decision to buy real estate, live with roommates, live completely for free, and keep investing. And it only took me three years for my net worth to cross $1.2 million. And so for me, it was well worth it. I'm 28 now. We're not going to live with roommates forever. In fact, the month of August, which I don't want to, I don't know when it's coming out, but that's not too far from us when we're recording this. I'm not going to have any roommates moving forward. Um, you know, they moved out in July. So now I'm 28. I don't have to live with roommates anymore. I collect about, you know, $40,000 per month in rent. And um, it's all because we just kind of slow played it with this roommate strategy and it, it worked out great. Yeah, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because I tell this exact same strategy on the show all the time, but I've never had an exact concrete example to give of somebody who's actually done it because I haven't fully done it myself. I've done parts of it here and there, but I've studied it a lot. So I know it does work. And so I'm super excited to have you here and be having this conversation. I know people are going to get a lot of value out of it. Does it have to be a super expensive market? Does it have to be like Seattle or could it be middle market and be not necessarily the Midwest? So it's not cheap, but it's also not high end like New York or San Francisco or even Seattle? That's a great question. So I personally, I only own properties in Seattle. I'm not married to Seattle by any means. I will actually be investing in the Midwest when I buy apartment buildings, but I can only speak to what I've personally done. However, I think this could work anywhere. When I talk about the expensive market and how that helps, it's people are are not only willing to, but excited to live with roommates if it means they're going to save a thousand or fifteen hundred bucks a month in rent. So in the Midwest or in the South, where if you could find a really nice apartment for seven hundred and forty-five dollars, then it maybe you don't want to go live with roommates or you know or share a house. So I think the expensive market does help, but at the end of the day, you have to live in a home. And I'm sure you probably have a couple of buddies that would like to pay less rent wherever you are. And if they just, you know, if they live with you, or if you even want to not have roommates, if you want to just buy a place, there are always people looking to save money on rent. And if you splice it up by the home, it's less rent for them, but it's way above market for you. So that it really is a win win. I can't help but sit here and, and smile and, and almost laugh a little bit because almost every strategy in real estate that we talk about doesn't work as well in expensive markets. And then we were talking about this strategy and we're saying probably does better in expensive markets. And I mean, that's illustrated by the rents that you're able to demand in per bedroom because you said you're getting about 900 on average, which to me is kind of crazy because my rentals in Texas, we get 950 a month for a full three bed, two bath house with a garage, very nice yard, all fenced in, great school district, great neighborhood. And we're only getting 950 bucks a month. So it's, you know, it's kind of crazy to hear that you're able to demand those rents on a, on a one bedroom. It is wild. And you know, part of it is because Seattle is just so the average income is so high here because we have Amazon and Starbucks, um, Expedia is coming and um, Microsoft is like 20 minutes away in a town called Redmond. But it's, if you ask anyone, it's really close to Seattle. Because of that, pricing of houses and apartments has skyrocketed. And so people that don't work in tech, basically, that don't have these huge, crazy salaries. Are moving to the outskirts of Seattle, and that's where I'm buying. It's the most ripe for appreciation, and it's cheaper too. It's you know I bought my first house for um, five hundred and six thousand dollars, which may seem like a lot of money, but had I bought that same house twenty minutes north, it easily would have been one point two million. Yeah, I have you know I have some people paying nine hundred for master bedrooms. We get thirteen hundred dollars for a master bedroom, which is more than some apartments in some areas, like you're saying in Texas. So yeah, this it, it does work in, incredibly well in an expensive area. And specifically, I try to buy an undervalued 
neighborhoods in that area that are going through a transition. So in just four and a half years, we've also realized about 700 grand in appreciation. That's without doing any sort of renovation because they're all new builds. We hit kind of this, this sweet spot, if you will. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you bought a property that was, I believe, eight bedrooms and four baths. So when I hear that, do you have any concerns or have you thought about what's going to be on the back end if and when you decide to sell this? And the reason I ask that is because it's a single family home. And so is there really a big market for people? And maybe Seattle's different, but is there really a big market for people that want to buy an eight bedroom house with four bathrooms that, I mean, sure, it's probably the wealthier demographic could purchase that, but is, is it really going to sell well uh, at that point? Or do you have to find somebody that's doing a similar strategy to what you're doing? So yeah, that's a really good question. So you're right. Eight bedroom, four bathroom home is kind of odd for a family, for sure. So if we were ever to go sell it, we'd probably advertise it as like, you know, six bedrooms and two bonus rooms or, you know, an extra family room or something like that, or like a game room we could put a billiards table. But I've had so many people after I was on bigger pockets kind of be about my strategy and they want to get into it too. I don't see any hardships with if I did want to get out from under it, I could probably sell it to someone who wants to start a house hacking business. And it's so lucrative and it would cash flow so great. So whether it's to a family or to another house hacker, I, I don't really foresee a problem. The other thing I could do is if I ever want to get rid of these properties, I might 1031 exchange into an apartment building. So I have a few exit strategies, but it, it wasn't a huge concern for me. But I totally get it. Yeah, most families don't want or need eight bedrooms. It's interesting that you're talking about taking two bedrooms away. You know, it's legally an eight bedroom, but in order to get it in a more competitive market where people might be interested in it, you're actually talking about taking bedrooms away. And that's the exact opposite of what you hear a lot of people do. Everybody's looking to add bedrooms usually. Yeah. I mean, we could just say, hey, you have a, it's a six bedroom house with a home office and a, and a media room or, or, you know, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, there, there's options there. That sounds brilliant to me if it fits your market, right? If, I mean, if that's what people want, that sounds like a very good idea. Do you have issues with comps at that level of, of bedrooms? Because obviously it's a single family property. So it's being valued based on comps rather than a multifamily over five units that would be valued on cap rates and other income, you know, net operating income. So do you have issues with comps at, at that many bedrooms? Well, I've never sold a house before. I've only bought them. And when you're on the buying side, it's actually phenomenal because you're buying it as a single family home. So like, for example, the home that we've been talking about, this eight bedroom, four bath, it's, I bought it for $634,000, which in Seattle is not crazy, you know, definitely not crazy, but I'm getting about $8,000 per month in rent. And if I were to rent that house out to a family, I'd probably get between 2,800 and three grand per month. So I was basically able to buy something that technically, yes, was that market for a single family home, but I'm getting so much above market in my rents that it actually works out phenomenal for me because my mortgage, the way it works out, you know, I mentioned before, is 4,000 bucks a month in pure cash flow on just one house. I mean, that's, you look at the average income in America, it's like 50 grand. I'm getting 50 grand passively every year from one single family home. You can't beat that in a lot of areas. So we're, we're very happy with it. Plus the appreciation and all the tax benefits that you're getting. Oh, yeah. So I mean, the way it works out is, you know, so we bring in right around $40,000 per month, a little less than 40000 It comes out to about thirteen grand per month is pure cash flow. And we do pay for all utilities. We have a house cleaner go through every single house on a weekly basis. So that's after all of that. So we make over 150 grand in a passive income and we pay zero taxes on it because of our depreciation schedule. Actually, the first 
quarter million bucks that we make is completely tax free. So that's just another benefit of real estate is I can't think of anything else in the world that goes up in value while you can legally say it goes down in value for tax purposes. Yeah, that's always been an interesting dynamic and one that's amazing about real estate. How did you, and maybe this wasn't an issue for you, but for a lot of people, I think it is, and it was for me. How do you overcome the issue of buying a property that you're going to have a two or $3,000 mortgage payment on, You know, especially as your first property? You were earning a six-figure salary, so you could probably cover it if you had to. But I mean, you're looking to do something so that you can get your mortgage payment down or your or your living costs down. So how do you stomach something like that? You know, people are probably going to be worried that they're going to buy a property and may not be able to rent out the bedrooms. So how do you stomach buying something like that and then potentially having to be stuck with that mortgage payment? Great question. So it goes back to when we were looking at an apartment to buy, even an apartment that was just a one bedroom, one bath, that was going for like twenty seven hundred bucks. And that wasn't a ton of space. It was, you know, eight or nine hundred square feet. So the $3,000 mark was already so close for us. It was just going to be a rental anyway. So we're like, well, we might as well be, we have a mortgage instead of renting. I think it's, it did help. I'd be remiss if it didn't say the demand is just so high. We had no fear whatsoever that we would be able to rent rooms to cover the mortgage. And even if we didn't, we'd be spending this relatively the same amount anyway on an apartment or, or close to it. But I mean, the market in Seattle is so hot. We actually had... Uh, I did a YouTube video on this a few months back where Seattle was the number one city for millennials as far as net migration. So that means like the number of millennials that moved out compared to the number of millennials moved in, that net increase was higher than any other city in the country. And as a default, most of my tenants are young people because only young people want to, you know, are okay with living with four or five people. So it's just such a hot market over here that, yeah, there's really, I've never, and maybe this is just my, you know, maybe I'm arrogant, I don't know, but I've, I've never once had a fear of being able to rent a room. And again, we've never had a vacancy. I, I've literally moved people out in the morning and then send cleaners through, do some touch of paint and move somebody else out in the afternoon. In fact, today, when we're recording this podcast, I went over at 7 a.m., helped a girl move out, and I have a new girl moving into that exact same room today at 6 p.m. Did you do any sort of analysis before you looked into this? I know obviously there's demographic trends and there's a lot of news headlines and things like that that you can read, but did you do any research and say, this is what I can get for this bedroom, this is what I think I'll be able to get for this bedroom, so on and so forth, and I feel confident in these numbers? I did, yeah. So what I did was I sort of just looked at the price of studios and saw what that was. And I knew I needed to be less in the studios and actually significantly less to be worth it to live with roommates. But the houses that I buy are so big between six and eight bedrooms that even though I'm charging less per bedroom, I have so much volume that the cash flow still works. And then also what I did was I just kind of looked at... My wife and I were in a very privileged position where I had a six-figure base salary. And I was still making huge commissions from my sales job. I mean, I walked home with a commission check one day of over $30,000. So we had this really high income and we still didn't want to go spend 2700 bucks a month in rent. Well, if you're making 60 grand or 40 grand or 80 grand, whatever, anything less than what we're making, you also don't want to spend $2,700 a month in rent. So then we compared it to other options and, and studios, and we wanted to price it relatively high to attract a higher quality tenant. So we started including things like we have a housekeeper come through and clean every single house, and we have pest control every three months, and we supply all of the toilet paper and paper towels and hand soap and dish soap. Just because if you're always buying that stuff and your roommate's using it up, eventually that's going to irritate you. So 
we feel that we provide a premium product as far as the room rental space goes. Like, I don't think there's any room rental that is doing even close to what we're doing. If, if they exist, that, that'd be one thing. But even if they do exist, all of our furniture is really nice furniture. The houses are brand new. All utilities included, we have a maid. So we just try to do the best we possibly can. We're able to kind of dominate the market that way. So I want to dive into how you analyze real estate deals even more, or these specific types of deals. My favorite part about real estate investing is actually analyzing the deals. I'm a numbers guy. I'm an accountant by trade. That's kind of where my specialty is. I even teach a live class that teaches people how to analyze real estate deals. But I don't spend much time analyzing rent by the room properties, mostly just traditional rentals and house hacks. So if you could walk us through how you analyze one of these deals before you buy it. So the good thing going for me is because they're all single family and not multifamily, they're priced according to market. So they're priced for either someone to live there or to rent out for you know $2,500 or $3,000 per month. That's in my favor. When I look at each bedroom, what I really look for is a good bedroom to bathroom ratio. You don't want any more than four people sharing one bathroom. And even that's a lot. But in our eight-bedroom, four-bathroom house, that means you know there's two people to a bathroom. So that's really good. And then I just sort of like look at what do studios in the area go for? And can I come in at half of what a studio is? And if I can, and the numbers work out and it makes sense, that's what I price kind of the smaller bedrooms for. And then the larger bedrooms are the ones that come with a garage spot or you know a private bathroom. Those are a little bit more expensive. The numbers are so... like I mean, as I mentioned, I'm getting a, a 100% cash on cash return on my first deal. And the way that works out is we put $19,000 down and we get a cash flow of $25,000 per year in pure profit. So it's actually a bit over 100%. Some people are trying to get like a 10% return or an 8% return. And heck, we're getting over 100. So it's even if it was half that, a 50% return, that's still phenomenal. All of these are, I agree, they're very fun to analyze. And my wife is actually an accountant too. It's a small world. A little ashamed to say, but I'm targeting 15% returns and I'm, I'm happy about that. You know, I mean, I got a 37% return property consistently, but even that, I mean, that doesn't compare to 100%. There's very big difference there in, in those numbers. I want to now walk through a specific deal of yours. Do you have one that we could walk through? Yeah, for sure. All right. So, how much was it? What kind of property is it? And where is it located? I'll do the one that I'm living in right now. Um, it's nine hundred thousand. That's what I bought it for. It is a duplex and it is located about fifteen minutes outside of downtown Seattle. And what do the numbers look like on this? What was the down payment and what is the monthly cash flow? So I had to put, I believe, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars down. My monthly cash flow on this one is a little bit lower because now I live here with no roommates. But the cash flow is about eighteen hundred bucks a month. If I had roommates again, it would be more than that. And so what is your plan with this property? Are you, were you renting it out by the room, even though it's a duplex? So did you rent out the other duplex by the room? And then also the property that you lived in, was that by the room? Yeah. So how it started is um, my wife and I lived in one half and we rented out the other bedrooms in our half. And then the second half of the duplex, we actually had that on Airbnb. And then we converted one of the garages into a studio that we had on Airbnb as well. Those were killing it. We had... I think 100 five-star reviews on our Airbnb. The money was insane. And then of course, the coronavirus pandemic happened and people stopped traveling. So we made the pivot to instead lease out the second half of a duplex to a couple. We're now getting $2,200 a month for that half. 
and we leased out the garage studio full time to just an individual guy. We're getting twelve hundred dollars for that unit. But before in the summer, we were going to get closer to six thousand dollars per month on Airbnb for the the second half of the duplex. So much less. But once these leases expire, assuming the coronavirus, assuming the COVID pandemic will be behind us, hopefully we'll try to put that back on Airbnb. And so you mentioned that you went to help out an individual move earlier. So are you self-managing all of your units, not just the ones that you live in? Yes, sir. So I manage everything and I helped this individual move out. She's just a, a single female and she had a lot of heavy furniture. So I wanted to go out and help her out. It also helps me because if I can ensure that she gets out in a timely fashion, I can help the next person move in or at least give them their key so they can't occupy immediately. So I don't want any delays. This is part of the reason why we've had no delays in rent either is I'm very proactive to help people move in and out. Are you still working your corporate job while you're doing all of this? I did take some time off actually. So I took some time off from my sales job to really focus on the Airbnb strategy, which that's how it built up to be so big. And then we had to take it offline after the pandemic. But I I probably will go back to uh, my sales job in January or working in the sales arena. But for now, um, probably the rest of this year, I'm just going to focus on real estate and also YouTube and Instagram. Just trying to build a platform to teach people what I'm doing as well. And so if you're able to go back to your sales job, the rentals must not be taking up a ton of your time if you plan on being able to work full-time and still do all the real estate business, assuming that you're going to continue to manage yourself. Yeah, exactly. So the Airbnb was taking up a lot of time, but the regular room rentals do not take up that much time. I, you know, there, there are some days where I will work 12 hours for an entire day. But then other times, I won't have anything to do for like 3 months. So how it averages out is probably about 5 hours a week-ish of actual work on my room rental business. And you mentioned a couple of things earlier that we kind of just went past. And I want to go back and I want to talk about that because I think it's going to help partially answer my next question, which is how do you manage so many individual tenants and roommates essentially efficiently? And the time period that you just mentioned, that doesn't sound like a lot of time. So tell us a little bit more about those strategies that you're using. You talk about how you have a maid and how you provide toiletries and all of those different things. Tell us a little bit more about that. So first, we have one all-female house. We have one all-male house, and then we have four mixed houses. So if you have a preference, then we, you know, we have some options for you. The maid comes every single week, and she scrubs the toilets, showers, she'll clean the oven, the microwave, vacuum, mop, all that stuff. We did that because the number one fight that roommates have is mess. So we wanted to eliminate that right away. The second thing we did was we decided to supply all of the toiletries, pretty much except for laundry soap and shampoo and stuff. And um, that is because we just didn't want anyone to go out and buy it and then their roommates use it up and, and have it be unequal there. That's another thing that people would fight about. So we just resolved that. And then the pest controls included so no bugs get inside. We cover all utilities. So we have the premium cable package with you know the best internet, the highest data plan, all the premium channels. We have a house Netflix account, a house Hulu account. So pretty much everyone just has to pay one single payment every month. And so nobody's dividing receipts up at the end of the month. We also do our best to match by personality. It's not an exact science, but if someone applies to a house that I own, and based on our conversation, I know that they would be a better fit for a different house, I'll show them the one that they applied to. Then I'll also say, hey, just so you know, I have this other spot right down the street. Based on the roommates living there, I think you'd be a really good fit for this house instead. Do you want to check, take a look at that too? And most people really appreciate that because they don't want to be unhappy with their living. So harmony in the house is huge for what we're trying to do here. I think it's so interesting that you offer all of those different services and products and different things to your tenants because 
I'm sure that all of that combined isn't super cheap. And that's just cash flow that's coming out of your pocket. I mean, in reality, you could probably still have all those rooms rented out without offering those services. So why are you doing that? I'm guessing it's to reduce turnover, reduce issues, and that allows you to actually have a better business. But I think a lot of people would just look at the bottom line and say, hey, I need to cut costs everywhere possible to make sure my cash flow is as high as I can. So how are you combating that? Great question. So the first thing is our cash flow is already 13 grand a month that we're making passively. So it's not like we're hurting for anything. The second thing is, I believe you're right. I think we could have all the rooms leased out, but maybe for not as high. We charge a premium for each bedroom, but people are like, oh, this is an expensive room, but also it wasn't made every single week. And you know, man, $1,300 for a master bedroom is kind of a lot, but I never have to buy toilet paper or paper towels and all utilities are included and we have HBO. So I do it in part to sort of like, I want to make sure that the high price point is justified. And I want a high price point because I feel that it helps attract just like a more professional, higher quality tenants. You know, this may seem controversial, but we have a no smoking policy in our houses because some people have headaches, it'll ruin the furniture, all that stuff. And if you just kind of look at at who smokes, it's like, man, 75% of all smokers are low income. So we decided, well, we're going to have high-end stuff that it'll price that riffraff out of the market. And that may seem controversial or you know, whatever word you want to use, but for us, it protects our assets so much. We probably could slash a few things here and there, but we do want long-term tenants. We want a good reputation in the area. Seattle is a very tight-knit community. I don't want to be known as a slumlord or just you know, some guy that is, is milking it. I don't think of any of my tenants as tenants, actually. I think of them all as clients. It really helps. Sometimes we'll, we'll host parties for them. We'll have game night and we'll order pizza or we'll take all of our tenants and we'll get them together and we'll all go mini golfing or we'll go to the batting cages or have a picnic. We host all of it. And it's just a way to sort of get that community and engagement because a lot of people have terrible bosses or terrible landlords and we just don't want to resemble that at all. How much of this do you think is impacted by your sales job? When I hear you taking them out, their quote unquote clients, you taking them out for all these different outings and doing these different building activities, how much of that do you think is driven by your career in sales? Oh, probably like 100% of it. <laughs> I would imagine. I mean, my job, you know, like from an early age was to go out and smooze people, basically, you know, to wine and dine them and to, and to get them on board and to get them to like you. And um, not that I have to be best friends with my clients or my tenants. But um, it helps when they like you. It's that fine line between like and respect. And so we took all of our tenants ice skating one day. We just got a bunch of houses together and took them all ice skating. Yes, it, it was an expense to us. And yes, it did cut into our cash flow. But we're making so much money now in rents and appreciation and, and everything that it's like, I don't think we would be where we are at now if we were just trying to do the bare bones, just squeeze every dime out of our tenants. Like, I think the fact that we provide these services helps them to stay longer and also just gives us a good reputation in the marketplace. Well, vacancy is just so expensive. And if, if you didn't provide these services and somebody decided they didn't want to be there anymore because they weren't having a good experience, and just say it's one bedroom, an average price bedroom, not even a master, there's $900 down the drain. And I'm sure you're not spending $900 a month on ice skating or mini golfing. So, No way. Yeah. We had... Before the coronavirus pandemic happened, we had a party with a taco bar. And so we got it catered from this really nice Mexican restaurant. And we had drinks and tacos and all these wonderful things. You know, all of our tenants from different houses came. That was 200 bucks. 
it was such a cheap thing and everyone's paying us, you know, $900 to $1,300 a month. It was, it was such an easy thing for us to do. The other day we made, um, we made quarantine baskets for our tenants where we put food and wine and all these things in these little baskets and we dropped them off at each house. That was another thing. It was like, it's very little effort and very little money, but to them, it meant so much to them. You know, like it was, it was just saying like this thoughtful thing. Oh my gosh, my landlord is bringing me this quarantine basket. You have to stay inside and it sucks. So we're like, here's some popcorn and here's the movie list and all these things. So I think people really do appreciate it. Even if just one of those, that leads to one tenant not leaving as early as they were gonna, there's, it pays for itself really in just by reducing vacancy. Well, and we've had so many referrals too. We started off doing just advertising on social media, not paying for it, but just you know posting on Facebook and Instagram. I have a few tenants that we got that way and in Craigslist, of course. But now a lot of our businesses are people that actually live in one of our houses and they have a friend looking for a room to rent and they're like, hey, come here. It's awesome. And to the point that we've actually had people that move out and then end up moving back. We've had four or five people that have moved out to live with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or they decided they wanted to get their own apartment and experience living alone. We've had four or five people move back into our houses because it's hard to beat. And do you offer all of these same product services, all these features of your places when you live in the property too? I do. Yes. Yeah. So whether we live there or not, it has all the same features, um, still has the same housekeeper, same pest control company. So no matter what room you choose, no matter what house you choose, all the same utility package is included. And so how do you keep the separation between you being the landlord and you being their friend? And how do you deal with them making sure that they pay you on time and not take advantage of you and not pay late? And just all of the different things that can come from being a friend versus being a landlord and running it like a business. It sounds like you run it like a business, but how do you keep that relationship, that line drawn in the sand? That's a great question. So I think there are sort of two ways that a landlord or a boss or a leader of any sort can sort of have respect or authority. And one is like kind of, you know, you you respect out of fear. Like, oh, if I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble. Like if I don't pay on time, it's going to be a late fee. And the other way is you're likable. So I don't want to pay late because I like this guy. And the perfect blend is when you can have both. And I would say I've done a relatively good job in trying to get people to both like me and respect me. Now, not everybody wants to be their landlord's friend. I totally get that. And I'm not looking to be friends with my tenants, but I am looking to be friendly with my tenants. And being transparent, I do have people pay late and, and I do charge a late fee for that. There are some scenarios where no late fees, fees are charged, like during the coronavirus. Obviously, I'm not charging any late fees there because people's jobs are up in air. But luckily, knock on wood, fingers crossed, we have not lost any money through this entire pandemic. I had a young woman who, you know, gosh, several months ago, her father passed away. And she texted me and she was like, Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be late this month. Can you remind me what the late fee is? I have to fly to California for my dad's funeral and I can't pay for the flight and also pay rent on time. And I was like, of course, you're not going to pay me late fee. Go be with your family, go to the funeral and, and take care of yourself and, and just pay rent when you can. There'll, there'll be no fee. Or if someone loses a job or something like that, I don't charge any late fees. The only time I actually hold them accountable to a late fee is like if they text me and sometimes they do this, they're like, hey, I spent too much at the bar last weekend, so I'm going to pay rent on the 10th instead of the 1st. I'm like, okay, pay me my late fee. <laughs> but you know, if it's like an actual problem, I'm not here to nickel and dime anyone. You know, I, I want them to enjoy living here. And we're all people. You know, we're all humans. Let's treat each other with respect and decency. Yeah, it's funny that you're based in Seattle because Amazon's there. And I'm thinking, 
how you run your business as a customer-centric, essentially, business, which is what Amazon is known for. Jeff Bezos founded Amazon under the mission of being world's most customer-centric company. It sounds like you're taking after Amazon, Seattle's probably largest company, doing something similar with your own rental business. So I think it's really, really interesting. How do you maintain the peace between the tenants? I know you're doing a lot in terms of the services to help mitigate some of the risk of them fighting, but like, what if there is a conflict? How do you handle that? Do you even get involved with that or do you let them figure it out on their own? I get involved if I'm asked to. Most of the time, if there's a dispute, they can handle it themselves. Another thing we do is every house has a second fridge. Everybody has a labeled cabinet with their name on it, or they have a, a pantry shelf with their name on it. So space is, is divided up pretty evenly. But sometimes people just don't get along. And when that happens, I usually offer to come in. And maybe that means somebody's moving to a different house. Or maybe we have had it a couple of times where I probably had four or five people that we just kind of had a heart to heart. And it was like, look, I don't think you're the type of person that can live with roommates. Just the way you are, they admit it. You know, they, they actually bring it at first. They're like, look, you know, this bugs me and that bugs me. And, and, and it's like, but those are things that are going to happen when you live with people. And so when that happens, usually what I do is I offer to list their room. And as soon as I find someone, they can take off and go get their own apartment. And I'll rent their room up to somebody else who is more suited for a shared living situation. But it does happen. And how do you handle pets in your properties? I think I have a good idea as to what you're probably going to say, but how do you handle pets? I don't allow any pets of any kind, actually. And that's because there's a few reasons. Number one, all the houses are new construction. They have nice floors and pets can scratch up the floors. Number two, all of our furniture is very high-end furniture from Macy's Furniture Gallery. And we have a warranty on all of it. And having a pet in the house voids the warranty. So right now, if a couch gets destroyed, we get that replaced for free. As soon as a dog walks in and sits on the couch, that warranty's done. And the last reason is some people are allergic. I had a young woman message me about a room to rent. And she's like, hey, I see your ad says no pets, but I have an emotional support animal. It's this cat that I have, and it's legally not a pet. And you know, you can't legally deny me from having my emotional support animal. And I responded with the truth, which was, hey, I agree. This emotional support animal is your, is your emotional support animal. That's a legitimate thing. However, one of the guys in this house is severely allergic to cats. It's completely true. He works for NASA, actually, a really smart guy, but he's like deathly allergic to cats. And for that reason, that trumps this other person who has this emotional support pet. And immediately she agreed right away. She's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. If this guy <laughs> could die when I bring my cat inside, then this isn't a good fit. And um, that, that happens in a few houses where someone's allergic to cats, someone's allergic to dogs, and then for that reason, we even the emotional support pet thing, we get away with not allowing that. But people are pretty reasonable. You know, like if, if you have roommates that don't like animals, you don't want to live there with your dog if people are going to hate your dog. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is it's not even being allergic. That aside is like if you're all sharing common space, if you're sitting in the living room watching TV and somebody's dog runs up and jumps on you, which you can't really control. I mean, you could try to keep them in your bedroom, but that's going to be difficult with a pet. So I mean, it just makes for a hard living situation. And you talked about how strong the demand is. So I'm assuming it's not going to be an issue. But I wonder if not allowing pets reduces the demand that you could potentially have if you had pets. There are definitely people that hit me up all the time. They see my ads and they're like, hey, this looks so great, but I do have a very small chihuahua. It's well-behaved or whatever. And I'm just very firm. I'm like, I can't do it. I appreciate you reaching out, but I can't do pets of any kind. It's because it's a shared living situation. And some people just don't like animals. Some people are allergic. It just wouldn't be a good fit. They're pr- no one really fights me on that. 
And I'm definitely by no means discrimination attorney or lawyer or anything along those lines. But I thought I had heard or read somewhere that different types of properties don't have the same discrimination laws. So I, I thought something along the lines of if people are living together, you're allowed to consider different things like emotional support pets, especially if somebody's allergic. So again, I'm not an attorney of any kind, and I, I do not advocate that anyone discriminate. What I will say is when you're looking for a roommate instead of a tenant, you can put in some criteria that you couldn't otherwise put in. Like For example, I mentioned earlier, I have an all-female house. So if a man applies to that house, I can tell him no. Where you know, if it's an apartment building or whatever, you can't disallow someone based on sex, and you shouldn't. But in this scenario where it's a group of young women living together, they're doing that because they're not comfortable living with men. If I have some creepy guy that wants to come live there, I can tell him no. And especially when I live there too, it's like, if I live in a house and I don't want... It's my house. Like I'm renting a room out in my house, but you're going to be my roommate. I can pretty much say like, hey, no cats, no dogs, no fish. Even if I'm not allergic, it's my house. If you don't want to live there, that's fine. There is some benefits where you get kind of a pass. But again, not a training of any kind. And I wouldn't recommend that anyone discriminate on age, sex, race, or anything like that. So keep that in mind, obviously. But yeah, when you, when you have room rentals, most of the people are going to be young. And if you have some women, particularly that want to only live with women, then we have that option and it makes it so it's just kind of less threatening to them. Yeah, I completely agree. And we're not having this conversation to try to find a loophole to discriminate. We're, you're doing it to to run the best business that you can and make it the best situation for everyone involved, right? I mean, you're not doing it to just disallow certain people. You're doing it so that everybody in the house gets along and it's just the best situation for everybody that's partaking in in the property. So I think that's important to, to point out as well. So for someone listening to the show today that's interested in this strategy, what are the biggest things to look out for? What are some of the most common things you see people overlook when they're implementing this strategy? I would say if your strategy is going to be rented out by the bedroom, do not buy a house that has an HOA because many HOAs disallow rentals or they have at least a limit on how many units can be rented. Or at the very least, they have a limit on how many cars can be parked in the driveway. And if you're going to have six people living in a house, you need six parking spots, which actually brings me to tip number two, find a house with great parking. None of my rentals and my tenants have to street park. I have enough parking for every single bedroom. So that eight bedroom house, we have uh, nine parking spots there. Nobody has a street park. The next thing would be find a property with a very, very good bedroom to bathroom ratio. You do not want a seven bedroom, one bathroom house. <laughs> that will not work. So you want to make sure that you have enough bathrooms to support that model. And then sort of the next thing that... This is just a personal preference. I personally, for this model, wouldn't buy a townhome that's attached to another house. I would want to buy either the entire building or just you know one single family home, but I wouldn't be interested in buying like one unit of a condo complex to do this. I would want to. I'd want my own space, my own yard, and my own land. And so, for some people that are wondering, what is that right bedroom to bathroom ratio? So the first house we ever bought was six bedrooms, four bathrooms. I think that is pretty perfect. If you come across a house that's you know five bedroom, five bathroom, or six bedroom, six bathroom, so everybody has a private bathroom. That's also pretty awesome. But a six-bedroom, four-bathroom house is right on the money. I think that's a pretty darn good setup. I know that this conversation and some of the other podcasts that you've been on, specifically the Bigger Pockets one, has gotten me interested in this strategy. I actually plan on looking for properties like this now. I'm finishing up a house hack, a live and flip, and I'm looking for my next property to live in. And 
I think that this is going to be something that I very highly consider. And I know people listening to the show today are going to really enjoy it and want to connect with you further. So where's the best place for them to go? You guys want to DM me on Instagram. It's just at Todd J. Baldwin. And then I recently started a YouTube channel. It's just my name, just Todd Baldwin. And you can find me on there. And I teach house hacking on YouTube, pretty much anything to do with financial literacy, but mostly house hacking. And I just upload videos that anyone can watch at any time and, and learn the strategy. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out and I'll hopefully be able to answer them for you. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to, to staying in touch. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.